So this is usually the part where I tell a story or talk about current events that conveniently segue into today's episode. And y'all are all like mind blown because I'm killing it, obviously. I'm joking. I'm joking. But today, I wanted to address that if you're listening live, you may have noticed that the last episode came out a few months ago. And to be totally frank, I just needed the mental health break. I'd say this is the most personal and high-stakes project I've ever worked on. And let's be frank, students of color are asked to advocate for themselves so often on this campus, and every campus, really. The burden usually lies with the marginalized person to say that a wrong must be righted or a story must be heard. Bearing that burden of proof, that something's wrong, that we deserve better. Sometimes it's just too heavy. (laughs) And sometimes, for our own well-being, we have to put it down. But there's something that continues to give me strength throughout this process. This podcast isn't for to be explicit, white students or faculty, people in power. It's for students of color who don't have a sense of lineage on this campus, who feel like they're doing it for the first time alone. It's to center faculty and staff of color whose insights in this campus are invaluable. But if you're a white ally or you're not really sure where you stand in this whole equation, That's okay. I'm grateful you're here. And in a little segue into the episode, let's sit in this digital space together. What does it mean that it's dedicated to people of color? How does that change it? How does that challenge you? How does that make you feel more comfortable? Today's episode is about the physical spaces that are expressly dedicated to students of color on SMU's campus. Standalone buildings used to exist for us, but they don't anymore. What does that mean? My name is Sharjah Raja. I'm a human rights fellow at SMU. And this is Maladjusted. Being an SMU Mustang to me means that you adopted the whole spirit of the place and love the some things in our nation and the world to which I'm proud to be maladjusted, which I hope all men of goodwill will be maladjusted until the good society is realized. So throughout this podcast, we've spent a lot of time talking about how the past impacts the present, but I haven't really talked about how this present moment impacts how I talk about the past. I developed this podcast in the throes of the COVID-19 global pandemic. Politicians, news anchors, business people, and tired college students alike would throw on a presentable top and pajama pants each day, and open their laptop to start their work day. 
I'm sad to report that online classes were really difficult for a lot of folks, including me. I realized that I most enjoyed learning in shared spaces like the classroom. The spaces that no longer existed, at least for a period. But as I conducted research for this podcast, I learned about some shared spaces at SMU that ceased to exist pre-COVID. Spaces expressly dedicated to students of color. Andrea Sanders helped fight for one of these spaces in 1969. I told her that a building dedicated to students of color no longer exists. See, and that's not right. She was upset. These spaces weren't optional for her. They were necessary for her survival on campus. You know, when I would go home from school, one or two times I encountered somebody who said, oh, you're going to college? Yes. Where? SMU. And, and the reaction would be, oh, so a black school is not good enough for you? It wasn't about that at all. It was about, we just had a civil rights movement so I could have freedom of choice, and that's my choice. So you have to consider those extraneous factors that are pressing on a student when they go back home. And if they don't have a comfortable place on campus to relate to others who share their culture, then it's difficult. You have to have an extremely strong will to to tackle that alone. Now, before we continue, there's an important semantics piece that we should iron out early on. Isn't all of SMU dedicated to students of color? Technically, yes, but... Jessica and Kelsey from last episode had some really helpful insights to clarify why that might not be true. What was your initial impression of SMU's kind of campus culture towards people of color? When I was planning on coming to SMU, definitely my impression and my biggest fear was that there wouldn't be any people of color on campus. I knew what I was getting myself into. I had looked up the statistics of representation, the diversity at SMU, or rather lack thereof, like I was aware of it. It's kind of one of those things that, <laughs> I don't know, I feel like maybe a lot of people of color do it, but I know like a lot of black people do it, but you kind of look around and you're like, okay, oh, there's another black person. All right, you'll be fine. In case you see one, you'll be fine. I was really relieved to see people of color. I was both relieved and surprised. Um, I It kind of dispelled a lot of the fears that I had. I was like, wow, okay, a few black and brown people, I can work with this. You know, I could potentially feel at home here. Some of my story might be helpful here too. So when I was a prospective student, I did that thing that Kelsey and Jess described. I Googled SMU's demographics, I peered out of my peripheral vision, looking for students of color. I doom-scrolled on different sorority pages, wondering if I'd ever fit in. And once I got here, to be honest, I felt truly invisible. I felt like I could feel eyeballs rolling towards me, them bouncing off me. And sure, maybe that was my imagination. Maybe I didn't try hard enough. But being the only one of your identity in a predominantly white space, it's so hard. So I grew extremely close to my freshman year roommate, Sana. I hope you're listening. 
a South Asian American like me who shared a lot of my fears and hopes for school. I was extremely drawn to Sana because, well, she's super fashionable, funny, kind, but knowing someone with a similar background, with similar hopes and fears, I don't know if I would have made it through my first year without her. That's not to say I don't have some incredible white friends, but, well, I was talking to Lexi Quinton, then president of ABS and Alpha Kappa Alpha Incorporated, about it, friendship it, for like, survival. certainly in part like a survival thing. Like, oh, it's tiring. I'm exhausted. I don't want to have to teach you something every two seconds. I mean, I will, but I will say like, it's nice sometimes <laughs> having people who I can be like, oh, this professor said this to me and they know immediately what they meant. They are, they've experienced it. Right. So it's just another level of empathy that I can't always get other places. But to be sure, Making friends of color isn't the only tool for survival. Consider Rene Martinez, a Mexican-American student who attended SMU in the 60s, who'd travel home whenever he felt like it. See, I had the luxury of going home. Every day I would go home. We lived on Cedar Springs and Ruth. So I went home to a warm bed, clean clothes, great Mexican food, and I had the luxury of some weekends I would stay on campus and be with my SMU friends and spend the night. And then other weekends I'd go home and be with Mexican American friends. So I lived in two worlds and I think that was unique. And that two worlds idea didn't finish in the 60s. Up to the 2010s, people continued to experience a culture shock when they attended SMU. Here's Jess. You know, while there are groups on campus, that are diverse, campus as a whole definitely is not. It's not diverse in, you know, racially, socioeconomically. I remember Mustang Corral was the first time I met so many people who had gone to boarding school. This one girl was telling me about how she was getting ready for her debutante ball. Like just life experiences that I had never come in contact with and that were so aggressively white and wealthy. It, it was definitely a, a culture shock for me. So ultimately, to surround yourself with a community of color, just joined a multicultural Greek organization. But as Kelsey makes clear, not everyone goes down that path. Because I'm the type of person that like I can get along with everybody or like anybody, um, and I don't want the color of my skin or whatever to be like my sole like identifying thing that makes me connect with people. Um, I was never that way, like in high school, so it didn't make sense for me to come to college and do that. Like I had some, like I, I didn't come to SMU and only make friends with white people. Like that's not what I'm saying. But I just wasn't rooted in that community. Kelsey seriously considered joining a historically black sorority. And I, I don't know, at some point that flipped the switch for me in high school. Um, and especially when I chose to go to a school like SMU, where on the, in the big picture, you know, there's not a lot of people of color on campus. There's not a lot of Black students on campus. And so I wanted to be a part of something that had like a lot of people, a lot of faces, a lot of names. And so it So Kelsey ultimately opted to join a Panhellenic Greek organization that was historically white. The resource and population disparities between historically white and historically Black Greek life 
played a major role in that decision. So there are a lot of dimensions to the resource disparities between historically black and historically white Greek organizations. It was an imperfect, necessary trade-off. But how would the experience of black, indigenous, and people of color change on SMU's campus if we had one extra resource? A house. With, with the amount of spaces that aren't necessarily accessible to, to minority students, I, I, I don't I don't personally see that as as a as a difficult ask. Um, That's the voice of Brady Martin, a member of an IFC organization. And to be sure, that response came after a long grant from me talking about how not everywhere on campus feels entirely safe for people of color. I know it seems like a small detail, but the antebellum style construction of Greek housing, it's really significant. It sends students of color a clear message. And that's irrespective of gendered violence in sororities and fraternities let alone all of the systemic racism things we talked about in the last episode. All this to say, Brady thought that we should have a space. I mean, it will will probably be difficult, but it's kind of like, hey, we just we just want a space. Yeah, I'd definitely be interested in like continuing that conversation um, and just hearing from like the perspective of students actually, um, you know, affected by the lack of the space. Okay, ally Brady. No, but seriously, let's talk about it. Is the space what we want? So there are a few buildings to talk about, but while we're on the subject of Greek life, national panhellenic and multicultural Greek organizations each used to have a house. When you think about Greek life, you think about living together and how conducive these shared spaces must be to learning about yourself and others and really getting involved in the organization. Now, neither National Panhellenic nor Multicultural Greek Councils have a house. And honestly, I thought about how I wanted to frame this section for a long time. Multicultural Greek house being torn down, the history of housing serving people of color before, but Lexi gives an honest, comprehensive, and succinct summary, so I'm going to let her talk. Lexi walks through how the Multicultural Greek Council House was abruptly torn down in 2019. When you think about, I live in Daniel, I'm in Daniel Apartments right now. This used to be a house for Alpha Phi Alpha. Then it was a house for MGC, and then they took it from MGC without telling them, no notice. They said, oh, you're moving out. They moved them into Dyer House. I don't know if you've been to Dyer House. I had to stay in Dyer House before Daniel was ready for me to move in. So she home. Literally, it's terrible. There's cockroaches, it's old, it's dingy, it's gross. They're putting Dyer House up for bid. MGC deserves that house. They got their house. MPH deserves that house. We ought to share that house. We cannot compete with the other organizations bid-wise. It's just not feasible. And even when I spoke with somebody in administration like a year ago, I was like, have you ever thought about housing for students of color, like a house? They were like, well, if we were gonna give anybody a house, we would give it to honor students, like PSs, you know, Hunt Scholars. And I said, why? Knowing a bunch of Hunt Scholars and PSs who don't give a crap about honors at this university. They said, why? He said, community and retention. I said, you know who also has those issues? 
students of color. So, you know, yeah. And, you know, we used to have a house. AKA used to have a house. Delta used to have a house. Where are they? They're gone. They're parking lots. They've been taken from us. They're other houses. Panhellenic literally has an overflow house. <laughs> and we can't get one house on campus for either of our council's representation. That is so it's like redlining, essentially. Quick it's explanatory so comment. Obviously. Redlining refers to the process of barring people of color from mortgaging a house to maintain housing segregation. So essentially, if SME was a neighborhood, all of the houses would be owned by white people. Lexi's on fire, so let's go back well, to like, her. It's so irritating to me because I'm like, oh my God. And yes, I know not every... IFC chapter has a house. Like, I don't think Signu has a house yet, but they're brand spanking new. We've been here. Cavani has been here since like 75. The office have been here forever. Like, it doesn't follow that we should be the two councils of color <laughs> who don't have houses. And if the university is like, well, obviously, if you can't pay the bid, then, you know, sucks us up. It's not equitable, though. Like, you need to either lower it so we can. And I understand that, you know, SMU is a business at heart. So equity is not in their best profitable interests. The new fraternity that Lexi referred to, SIGMU, now resides in Dyer House. So National Panhellenic and Multicultural Greek Councils don't have a house anymore. And that in itself is infuriating enough. But historically, white Greek councils had been particularly defiant during the time that we were talking, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Parties getting shut down, entire houses under quarantine. But I just think that it's so it's so obvious that they don't care about us as much as they care about Panel. And you could say it's because they cause more problems, and that's facts, they do. We don't cause problems like that. But still, it's just like, they're gonna cost you to get on national TV and you're still gonna give them a house. Especially at the beginning of the school year, those fraternities, and I'll name them, I will name them, parties at the wazoo. And Dr. Turner was not threatening to take away chapters. I was like, you need to threaten all of us to take away our charters, take away our privileges, because it's that serious. Dues, their dues are so, like, our dues, they're not cheap, I'm not gonna front to you. It's a couple, it's, it's some zeros. <laughs> It's some commas and some zeros, but it's just not as much as theirs are. So, and members. So like legitimately they can use their discretionary funds from dues to bid. And they have an extensive, rich, 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 and extensive um, alumni association. And they're very loyal to their fraternities and sororities. As you probably know, a lot of the board of trustees is made up of people who are in fraternities and sororities. So yeah, it's just not an equitable situation. So many opinions in my little head. Okay, let me just say that Lexi is my hero, but notice how she captured the multiple layers of inequities that organizations serving students of color face in getting a house. So what other spaces have been historically dedicated to people of color on SMU's campus? I think it goes without saying that spaces reserved for people of color have been historically oppressive. The first space that I found SMU opened up to people of color was what they called, quote, Negro cabins. Based on what I could tell, it was a space reserved for domestic workers on campus. 
I found it in the context of a newspaper clipping, where a white student asked if the Negro cabins could be moved further away from the women's dorms. They found the living spaces unsightly. Now, I'm happy to report that the second house dedicated to people of color that I found was under a wildly different context. As far as I could find, the next space was requested by the Black League of Afro-American and African College Students, which was then the predecessor to the Association of Black Students. In a list of demands they presented to SMU's administration, they put it this way. We, the members of the Black League of Afro-American and African College Students, deem it necessary for the Black students on this campus to have a house for ourselves for the purpose of conducting social affairs and some business affairs. This house should include some recreational facilities. We further assert that a better and more fruitful relationship can result between Black and white students if such a house is created for us. Black people have been making contributions to society for many, many years without receiving the proper credit. Therefore, such a house as proposed would enable a black student to feel an integral part of the university and America. So, they ultimately got it. Though the house was initially dedicated to black students, it morphed into a house dedicated to black and Chicano students alike. Then, it changed again to an intercultural resource center. This is sort of a predecessor to the Office of Multicultural Affairs. Now, it's really important to recognize that the house was originally for Black students only. The Intercultural Resource Center far expanded the scope of the house. I mean, intercultural isn't even a race. It's just kind of alluding to not white. <laughs> but still, SMU community members of color reaped important advantages from this house. Here's Rene Martinez. Then that was the, the, the hub of where we had parties, we socialized, we had fiestas. It was all Latino. And, and, and then the students that came in the 70s continued it, funded by the university. What happened with that? <laughs> you guys are going backwards. <laughs> sure. You know, so we talked about socialization. Uh, that was an integral part of my socialization process at SMU because it was Latinos were all, we were all there, but Anglo students would come. We'd come and party and dances and food. Besides us having parties, which we had a lot, because Latinos loved to party, <laughs> it was we had a lot of discussions, you know, uh, about people's countries, their differences. Rene remembers the Intercultural Resource Center as predominantly drawing Latinx students. So I asked Jennifer Jones, the current director of Multicultural Affairs, about her memory of the IRC from a student then faculty perspective. Um, I think back when um, I was a student, I was just coming to SMU is when we had the Intercultural Resource Center. And um, I mean, it was a thriving place. It was a place for students of color to relax, let their hair down and just be. And they provided a lot of um, programming for those students as well as the campus community as well. So when she was saying all of this, I thought, why doesn't it exist anymore? It sounds idyllic. It sounds like a great place to gather. 
JJ's response surprised me. I think it was in the late 80s or so that the center actually we were looking at the, the thing was that we need to allow those spaces to be more visible, not only to the students of color, but to the campus. And I think that's when we moved to the student center. And then we actually evaluated the utilization of the IRC, that's what we call it, the IRC. And um, the students weren't utilizing it for several reasons. We had outgrown it for one thing. Um, and then the field, the student center was new, because so that must have been about 87. The student of color did not see their place within the student center. So that's when the whole campaign to get the then Multicultural Student Affairs Office moved into the student center. I definitely took JJ's points, but I also questioned the extent to which SMU programming slackened. It's also hard to think about the parties that Rene described in the student center. But nonetheless, JJ told me that the Multicultural Student Affairs Office became much easier to find after that. And students across cultures had discussions here, to the extent where JJ actually implemented study hours because the discussions were a little bit too lively. And now, the Hughes-Trigg office space is called the Office of Social Change and Intercultural Engagement. I haven't actually been there yet in part because of COVID, but in part because I haven't found a reason to. So how do we create these multicultural spaces at SMU? Does it take a house? Does it take a special program? Does it take the Sky Office? Does it take a student organization? JJ implored people to advocate to the Sky Office or to administrators. You know, I need students having the desire. So when you think that, well, I just can't see this big, ginormous thing happening, it can. We just, we need to encourage our students to think beyond the right now and think beyond of what we've always done because I'm not, I don't live in that bubble. I like, you don't ever have to do things the same way, but just making them dream big and think outside of the box. I, I want to ride whatever, whatever you dream you have in your head, I'm going to dream it with. But to be honest, I didn't know that there are spaces dedicated to students of color that existed in a non-oppressive way, in an effective way, that maintained retention and the well-being of students of color. So yes, these spaces should benefit people of color first and foremost, but could they benefit white students as well? People don't know what they don't know, and people are comfortable in the in what they know, in the spaces that they're in, and then there's a fear of going beyond those spaces because of rejection, of I don't want to um, um, be disrespectful in some kind of way unintentionally. So it's, you know, we have those invisible barriers that, that are set up there, but nobody wants to cross them. When people of privileged identities enter spaces for marginalized people, there's already a power imbalance. It's inevitable. It's endemic to social hierarchies like race. So to repair that imbalance, I think these interactions should take place in spaces that center and celebrate marginalized students. Lean into the unknown. So that addresses part of the issue, but let's go back to the beginning. 
How can we make SMU a space expressly dedicated to the well-being of people of color? I talked to Andrew Sanders, who attended SMU in the 60s and 70s. But there's something else with SMU. SMU, especially in Dallas, has a perception issue that needs to be overcome because SMU is viewed as an elite white school. And in some senses, it is. But that alone, that perception, keeps many qualified and interested African-American students from considering SMU. You know, I tell them and their parents, look, it's not perfect, but no school is. Andrew goes on to pan out to the wider Dallas context. SMU is, in fact, its own little bubble. But it's a bubble within a bigger bubble known as Dallas. And Dallas is a strange city. Dallas has a very unfortunate history of race relations. You know, they talk about a world-class city. What they should talk about is a tale of two cities. This town is divided in significant ways. Um, and there's an actual physical barrier, the southern sector of Dallas versus the northern sector of Dallas, and what is accessible to the people in each of those groups. So SMU is a small bubble in a big bubble of dysfunction. So we keep trying. For a city, for a home, for our schools. We have to work hard to make this a space for all. Now this episode is dedicated to the basement of meadows, the first floor of Lloyd, the second floor of shuttles, and the grassy patches around Clemens Hall. You all had my back. You saw this podcast through, and I can't thank the people that filled those spaces enough.